Welcome to Hope Brooklyn, everyone. My name's Russell. I'm one of the pastors here. If you can't tell by my awesome name tag. If you want one too, you gotta go see Serena doing our slides. But just be warned. I asked if she would make me one. She goes, you gotta commission me for that. That's a real artist right there. Pay me up front. Um, We are a church plant, which I think most of you guys know, and we are in our preview season of existence. That means many things. Most of all, in addition to the staff figuring out what it is to lead a church, um, most of all, it's about you guys figuring out what it is to be Hope Brooklyn. And we have three ways. We have almost like three pillars that kind of define what we're about. It's, it's, we got the page out of Jesus's playbook. When he did his ministry, these were the three things that were really important to him. He was constantly surrounded by crowds and disciples. He was surrounded by those who called him Lord and those who didn't know what to call him yet. And he was cool with it. He constantly shared meals with people. He shared meals with his disciples. He shared meals with Pharisees. He shared meals all over the place. Eating together and face-to-face, eating together face-to-face was central to Jesus and his ministry. And what we mean by face-to-face is we mean authentic. There's something, hopefully, the table at its best is when you get around it, it sort of disarms you. You put the weapons down and you're able to be free and to be open and vulnerable. And then lastly, we are a community of the story. We believe that the story of Jesus is so utterly compelling that we're dedicating our lives to going after it. But like we said, we're crowds and disciples. So there may be people here, or you may have friends who um, want real authentic community, but don't necessarily think Jesus is who he says he is. That's cool, you are more than welcome here. But we think this story of Jesus is absolutely compelling. And uh, we're in Advent, as Jose so brilliantly said, Um, This is the last Sunday. Advent corresponds to the season where we await the coming of Jesus. And each candle, which one went out? Oh no, I gotta do this real fast. One candle, well that's not good. Dripping wax all over the place. All right, there we go. This candle right here corresponds to love, which is the last Sunday. We had hope and we had waiting We had joy, and today we're talking about love. Speaking of love and Christmas, I love Christmas pageants. Anyone else love Christmas pageants? Yes, Nathan, I know he does. We've had many conversations. (laughs) Way too many conversations, probably, about Christmas pageants. They're the best. Children decked out in bathrobes, um, crazy creatures that you didn't know were part of the nativity scene that are. My dad, he was a little sour about him. He claimed some nationalism going on. He said that, what is this? My, my three sons are only good to be shepherds because they're Irish? Come on, what's that about? Are the Irish, they know how to work the land? There was one year, there was one year though, uh, fifth grade, I got to sing a solo. I had a nice soprano voice, which I'm not sure if my dad was more or less proud about that, but you know, Christmas pageants are great. They, they fill us with such warm and fond feelings. And there are many, many reasons, many reasons why it's important that children reenact this story. There are many good things that come from children sort of embodying this narrative. You know what's coming though, right? But, but I was uh, alerted to something interesting when I read a sermon by a great... Um, English pastor named Sam Wells. 
and he talks about a trip he took to Delhi, India. And while he was in Delhi, he walked through a, a public square and he saw a, a Christmas pageant going on in public, not a nativity scene, but a pageant. And it was being performed not by children, but by adults. And his word when he saw this was he was flabbergasted, a word only an English person would use. He was flabbergasted by the sight. He did not feel that warm fondness which we feel when we watch children perform Christmas pageants. He felt shock and he felt um, uncomfortability. Or what he felt was that he was vulnerable. He was exposed, he was defenseless. Or as he puts it, look at this quote. See, look what happens when you see a nativity play performed by adults in a country like India. A place where to be a Christian is always to experience being in a minority, often to face cultural discrimination and sometimes to find yourself in a place of physical danger. You start to see aspects of the story that get overlooked when it's all about a little donkey on a dusty road. What he felt was vulnerability, which is precisely what this story aims to do. It makes total sense. This is the Sunday of love. And all of us, all of us have been in relationships where we love people deeply. Whether it's your parents, significant other, friends, we've all been in those relationships. Love is vulnerability. Love is only found through being vulnerable. And if it's a true relationship, there must be mutual vulnerability. Both parties, both people must entrust themselves fully to the other. But what do we find in life? As we grow up, when we get vulnerable with with someone, many times we don't experience acceptance or affirmation or delight. We experience betrayal or rejection. And consequently, we're like, no, screw that. I'm I'm not being vulnerable again. I'm gonna protect myself. Which is why we have kids perform the pageant. Kids are one way that we hide from the vulnerability of this story. And make no mistakes, friends, it is a crazy vulnerable story. As C.S. Lewis says, love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you wanna make sure of keeping it intact, give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Now the gospel story, if I could give you a shorthand of what the good news is, It is God saying to the world, God saying to you, I want to be in a relationship with you. A real relationship, not a fake relationship and not a power trip relationship. I wanna be in a real relationship with you. And at Christmas, God tells us, I will not hide from you. I will be vulnerable. I'm putting all my cards on the table and I'm making myself scandalously vulnerable to be in a relationship with you. In this story, we discover what love for God actually means. What love for God looks like. Because when you read this story, you recognize that every character 
is insanely vulnerable, is pushed into a vulnerable position, which is exactly what it intends to do. And then you start to discover that you see yourself in some of these characters. Like, take for example, Joseph. Joseph, he's described as a righteous man, a good man, and he's engaged to a woman who I'm sure he must think is the epitome of grace. He must find himself a very, very lucky man until one day he discovers that she's pregnant and it's not his. Imagine, anyone in this room understand what betrayal feels like? What humiliation from the one you love feels like? That's what Joseph is feeling. His illusions of this woman come crashing down and then the story she offers him, you were impregnated by God? Are you kidding me, Mary? Like how much of a fool do you think I am? Like this guy knows the vulnerability that comes from being humiliated. And he's a good man, so he can't lie and claim this child is his own. But the punishment for this is adultery, or the punishment for adultery is death. The turmoil of his soul, the pain of betrayal, the rage at the man who touched her. This man knows vulnerability. And even, even after the angel comes to him in a dream and tells him, hey, what Mary said, it's true. That doesn't make it any easier. I don't know about you, friends, but I don't have angels talking to me in dreams all the time. To still have to rely on faith that that's real. And, and what this means is Joseph claims this child as his own. Consequently, Joseph and Mary are now the social stigmas because they had sex before they were married. Imagine that. Like he, the righteous man, claims this child who is not his own and submits himself to public disgrace. He knows vulnerability. This census that Rome you know, requires, he's gotta travel 100 miles with a pregnant wife to Bethlehem. For what reason? To be exacted taxes at a higher level. Who's comping him for missed time at work? No one. He's traveling, he's losing money so as to pay more money. Can I get an amen from someone in this room? Like seriously, this dude knows vulnerability. What about Mary? Mary's told she's found favor with God and she's rewarded for this favor with what? An unwanted pregnancy. Like she is thrust in our own day, in our own day when a woman is discovered as mysteriously pregnant and we don't know who the father is, it causes drama. In her day, when you're discovered pregnant outside of a marriage relationship, a marriage covenant with her people, she will be stoned to death. Don't tell me she doesn't know what fear is. Anyone here know fear? Being in a situation which you didn't ask to be in? God, what story have you thrust me into? And does the empire care if a pregnant woman has to travel 100 miles to pay more money? Absolutely not. Mary and Joseph, they know what it is to be vulnerable, to be exposed and defenseless and helpless. Herod, Herod knows vulnerability. He knows a vulnerability that only those in power can know. See, those in power, they are constantly afraid. 
And therefore, they use fear, they rule with fear as a way to secure their power because they're constantly looking over their back thinking, who's gonna stab me today? They know their day is almost up. And we forget, we love the idea of the gospel, this love story being for the victims. Don't get it twisted. Jesus is for the Herods too. Jesus is a gift of God for the Herods as well. And he's in a vulnerable position. And the soldiers, he commissions the soldiers to kill all the baby boys two years and younger. You don't think these soldiers know the vulnerability of a torn conscience? Anyone in here understand what it's like to be in a career where it's a kill or be killed world? Where if you don't cheat, you won't get ahead. And then this week, we, have no, we don't have to look any further than Aleppo to see a modern day example of the turmoil and the helplessness that comes with our broken, our broken natures. So already these plot lines are conspiring and weaving together and it's just dripping with vulnerability. And let's take a step back. In Luke's gospel in chapter one, he tells us about a couple named Zachariah and Elizabeth. And Zachariah and Elizabeth, they give birth to John the Baptist, who we talked about last week, who's highly instrumental for Jesus's ministry. Now, Zachariah is a priest and priests, they enter the holy of holies of the temple, the, the most important um, place in Israel's history. They enter that spot only one time their entire career. One time, Zechariah enters. He receives a message that he's gonna give, that, hit, that uh, Elizabeth in her old age is gonna give birth to a son. And because he doubts, he's stricken mute. Anyone know what it's like to have a career failure? You have, you've been waiting your entire life for this one moment and you botch the audition. You come out and you can't speak. He knows vulnerability. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth has waited her entire life for a child that has never come. And in those days, women didn't have careers they could throw themselves into. You're a mother or you're nothing. Anyone know what it's like to be judged for something you can't control and have no outlet for it? Elizabeth knows vulnerability. You see in yourself in any of these characters? See, that's what happens. That's what Sam Wells discovered when he saw adults reenacting this. He saw himself in this story and he wanted it to stop. It's too much, God. Oh, it's too tender. You're getting too close right now. Let's let the kids do it. I just want to feel good. The innkeeper, Mary and Joseph, they traveled 100 miles. They get to Bethlehem and this innkeeper I wonder how much he slept in this past week as hundreds and hundreds of people are descending in this little town and there are not enough accommodations. Anyone else know what it's like to be stressed at work? And I've always been taught that the innkeeper was kind of a punk to Mary and Joseph. That he was like this cold indifference. Ah, oh, we don't have any room for you. Go to this stable. But what if? What if that wasn't cold indifference, but the last act of mercy he could muster? Like, I, we don't have anything. We, we have this. I know it's totally inadequate, but it's all we have. 
What if it's a good man trying to do his job the best he can? Anyone else suffered from unjustly misinterpreted actions? And the wise men, these pagan philosophers from the East, traveling, putting all their hopes and their careers on this star, taking a huge step of courage. Courage is a vulnerable act. I've asked girls out before. It is vulnerable. Pouring their lives into this search for truth, having no idea what's gonna happen. Anyone else take enormous risk in life, hoping beyond hope that it's gonna pay dividends, but it might not. They know the vulnerability. And shepherds, these isolated, lonely men, constantly unable to maintain the eating laws of their people, receiving no love or respect from their peers, no excitement in their jobs other than, hey, are we gonna be attacked by a wild animal tonight? I don't know. Two to one, it's a bear. They know the pain of doing a job that no one else wants to do, but needs to be done, and everyone's judging them for it, and they wanna leave, but their family's depending on this paycheck, and so they're stuck in this terrible profession that they don't know how they got into it. Anyone else? Every character, every character in their own way is let outside the safe emotional walls whereby humans hide their hearts, whereby we don't, we refuse vulnerability because it hurts and because we've been vulnerable in the past, we've been rewarded not with affection, but with pain. Like a master storyteller, God has orchestrated the plot lines to such a degree that all are hopelessly and helplessly waiting in the silence of that night. Because I'm sure it was a silent night. Joseph Moore would not have lied to us. Wondering what will happen next. What's gonna happen? The gospel is God's desire to be in a relationship with you, a real relationship. Which means if it is a real relationship, a true, healthy, strong relationship, it requires mutual vulnerability. Now God has rendered the characters in this story vulnerable, helplessly so. But what of him? It's his turn. Vulnerable comes from the Latin word vulnerare. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Which means to wound. I love that idea. To be vulnerable is to wound or to be capable of being wounded. The logic of creation is that when you are wounded, they become scars. And to be scarred is to be changed forever, right? The greater the wound, the greater the scar, the greater the scar, the more your life is changed. I get my arm cut off, it's gonna be a great scar and that's gonna greatly affect my life. But I wonder, and I don't know if this word is used this way in the Latin, but I wonder if you can be wounded with malice and with evil and with anger, if it's not equally true that you can be wounded with love. 
that perhaps the wound inflicted is full of such joy, such grace, such delight, and overwhelming affection for you that your life, your scar, forever changes the way you see the world. That it's full of such grace and delight that you can no longer look upon another human being, you can no longer look upon God, you can no longer look upon anything in life the same way again. One of my favorite theologians, Stanley Hauerwas, says, to be human is to be vulnerable. But to be a baby is to be vulnerable in a manner we spend a lifetime denying. To be human is already to be vulnerable, but to be a baby is to be vulnerable in a manner that we spend a lifetime denying. For a relationship to truly be strong, both parties have to be equally and mutually vulnerable. Both parties have to be equally and mutually wounded. And Christmas is God saying to the world, I'll be vulnerable too. I'll be more vulnerable than you can even imagine. God is so unspeakably good that he inflicts himself, friends, not with a wound, but the wound. He inflicts himself with the wound into this vulnerable creation. He makes himself helpless and weak and utterly dependent. And he joins us in the broken and messy creation of our lives. What do you call this? Do you call it wisdom or folly? This is the scandal of scandals and it's absolutely central that at Christmas time, God does not send someone. He comes himself. And he does not come in power and he does not come in might. He empties himself of all his God-likeness and comes, not even as a full-grown human, but as a baby, the creator has subjected himself to the own creative processes he designed. He has weakened himself to the position of embarrassing vulnerability. Both parties have to entrust themselves to the other. And the miracle, the absolute, I don't even know what the word is, there's no analogy for it, of Christmas is where we have always been dependent on God. God now says, I am dependent on you. God makes himself dependent so that the two are bound. God and his creation are bound in a relationship that can never be ended, in an eternal relationship. There is nothing like this. There's no claim like the Christian claim of the incarnation. God is saying to the Marys and the Josephs and the Herods and the shepherds and the Zacharias and the Elizabeths of the world, and he's speaking to us in the baby Jesus, I entrust all of me to you. I will be wounded with you forever. And as we examine the preposterousness of this claim, that in those little fingers is the memory that created the sequoias. 
that he's trusted himself to people who cannot be trusted. And as we stare at the sleeping baby, knowing who it is, we are wounded by this love and we'll never be the same. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That is the central claim of our story. Chloe likes that. (laughs) So I wanna invite the worship team back up here. And to close, uh, we take communion every Sunday. And it's our way of reminding ourselves of what this love actually looks like. It's very much embodied and it's embodied in bread and wine. It reminds us of another chapter in the story that comes about 30, 33 years later when this baby has grown up and becomes even more vulnerable for our sakes. And so Jose is gonna come up and he's gonna share with us a bit of what communion means to him and how he's seen God at work in his life. And, um, and then we'll pray together and we'll take communion.